0: Hello and welcome to The Great Woman Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for great women artist listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the dark forest, Dante encounters the lion. A lion is described as so terrifying, that even the air around him is trembling with fear. That is when he meets his guide, Virgil, who gives him the strength to go through the rest of the afterworld. The surreal lion hoops pay homage to this moment, the shape echo, the tail of a lion with its textured tuft at the end, wear them as a reminder to give you courage through the winter months. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that today on the Great Woman Artists Podcast, we are speaking to the highly esteemed, world-renowned and pioneering art historian Wanda M. Korn. The Professor Emerita of Art History at Stanford University in California, Wanda M. Korn is a leading scholar of late 19th and early 20th century American art and photography. A writer, curator, editor and lecturer, Wanda has received countless awards and fellowships for her tireless work to art history over the past few decades. She is the author of many books, including on Georgia O'Keeffe, Grant Wood, Mary Cassatt, Gertrude Stein, among others, and the curator of exhibitions at the likes of the Brooklyn Museum, Cleveland Museum of Art, Stanford Art Gallery, the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, among many others. She continues to research, write, and lecture on high, middle, and low culture interpretations of Grant Wood's American Gothic. But the reason why we are speaking with Wanda today is because she also curated the staggeringly brilliant and highly successful exhibition, Georgia O'Keeffe, Living Modern, at New York's The Brooklyn Museum in 2017, which subsequently toured around the US, an exhibition that looked at how the renowned modernist artist proclaimed her progressive, independent lifestyle through a self-crafted person, from the way she dressed to how she posed for photographs, expanding her understanding of who O'Keeffe was. Keith was and her determination to be in charge of how the world understood her identity and artistic values. Wanda M. Korn,
1: welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing just fine, Katie. Thank you so much for that very generous introduction. And thank you also for mentioning my not so long ago exhibition. It only closed about a year ago after seven different venues and I'm Amazing. delighted to
0: be with you. Oh, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I mean, Georgia O'Keefe is someone who has fascinated the world with both her paintings, outlook on life, and visual aesthetic. Although I'm yet to visit her house in New Mexico, I have been lucky enough to witness her work in the flesh on numerous occasions. And every time I see one of her canvases, they transport me to another visceral world, whether it be the dryness of a New Mexico landscape, the industrialism of New York skyline, or the freshness and minute details of nature with her flower paintings. So I just love to start off by asking you when was it that you first heard of Georgia O'Keeffe and what were your immediate
1: reactions? Well, I recall very vividly that she had an exhibition at the Whitney Museum in the early 1960s and I was a graduate student in the history of art and honestly I'm not sure that I had her name in my memory bank yet. I wow. think I probably had the name but I couldn't Have conjured up images to go with it until I saw this retrospective, which at the time was really the first large scale exhibit. She was still alive. Oh, wow. So it was in her lifetime. Yeah. And we think that, of course, she was famous across the boards of her late life. But in fact, that wasn't the case. And in the early 60s, the women's movement was just barely launched. And there were no women that I can remember writing for or being a part of the exhibition team that put this together. Oh, wow. And I was knocked out by this exhibition because (laughs) it was, first of all, it it included decades of work. And yes, I must have known the flower paintings, but I didn't know about the New Mexico paintings. And at the time, frankly, it was the New York work that fascinated everyone. The the New Mexican work fell off the the cliff, so to speak, at that point. Oh my gosh. Everyone wanted to think about her as a New York artist, even though she was alive and well and living in New Mexico, it was her life with Stieglitz, it was her flowers, it was her skyscrapers, it was the incredibly adventuresome living with Stieglitz that caught everybody's imagination. And I fell prey to that, frankly, until my work on her art, which began in the early 1980s, and I was beginning to think about her flower paintings. I was writing a book called The Great American Thing, and I dedicated a chapter to O'Keefe. And each one of my chapters in this book is dedicated to a different artist and begins with a chosen work of art, out of which then I expand a journey of discovery about that artist and about one particular issue that was so prevalent in the teens and 20s, which is, could there be such a thing as an American work of art. And that was a driving force for O'Keeffe as well as other artists of her generation. Well, I was going to do a flower painting. But the more I thought about it, uh, the more I realized that we knew a lot about these flower paintings. And in fact, if you followed the course of her thinking, when she went to New Mexico, she was more comfortable with that material as American, and I'm putting my fingers up in the air with quotations around the word (laughs) American, but that was the West. And I realized that I really wanted to write about one of her New Mexican paintings. So I wrote instead about a painting called Cow's Skull, Red, White, and Blue. Yes. A painting where she attached a name, a title that clearly Americanized it. She was making a rather polemical statement, both in the material, it was a white skull, and in the red, white, and blue background. But that is to say, first, I had to discover all of her, but particularly her New York self. And eventually, I landed at a place where I wanted to look seriously at what she painted in another part of the country other than New York.
0: Yeah. And when you did come across those, I guess, New Mexican works, I mean, how did that make you feel?
1: Well, I didn't know that part of the world. I'm a New Englander, as we say here in the States. But I had crossed the country twice with my family as a young woman. So I knew something of the vastness of this nation. Yeah. And I knew something about how the West was not New York. But we're talking about dry desert West. We're talking about geological formations, cliffs and colors that are different. So I had a revelation in 1980. I was driving across country, and I stopped in by appointment to see Miss (gasps) O'Keefe. What? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I had help making an appointment with her, but I was writing this book. No. And frankly, I am somewhat misled you in a moment ago, because at this point I was still working on her flower paintings. Uh, but it was seeing her in the Southwest, in her home, talking with her for an hour that I was privileged enough oh to do. Oh, my gosh. And then her, she referenced her smaller home at Ghost Ranch, which was just <laughs> up the road 50 miles. And she said, well, you can't leave the area without seeing where I paint at Ghost Ranch. And she directed me and my husband how to drive there, which we did. And it began to dawn on me, this is not a part of the world I know anything about. These are visuals that are strange and that maybe that's why we don't look at her Southwestern painting on the East Coast the way we might. Because it is foreign territory and it's strange. It's a little lunar. It's a little out (laughs) of this world for East Coast people. What happened is that uh, then when she died in 1986, six years after I had interviewed her, I was put on a team of experts to help decide what was going to happen with her estate. And I went back and I actually had meetings with other people on the team in that very home and in that very room where I had interviewed her. And it was at that point that I realized definitively that I had to move my gaze from Georgia O'Keeffe in New York to Georgia O'Keeffe in New Mexico.
0: But, oh, my gosh, this is incredible that you met her. I mean, what was that like? What was it like seeing her in New Mexico?
1: Well, it's not unlike what you know because you yes. have seen her in her black dress and her pulled-back yes. hair and her <laughs> flat shoes. her colder brooch. <laughs> and the brooch. I can't honestly remember whether she was wearing the brooch. But I can say she was wearing one of her black wrap dresses. And I can also say that she was already in her early 90s, but she was sound of mind. She had macular degeneration in her late years. In fact, that's what basically took her out of the studio uh, because she couldn't see well. But she knew her property so well that she sure fooled me. She led me out to my car. She knew how to take her steps. She used a cane, but she was extremely steady on her feet. And she was willing to talk with me freely. She talked in short sentences, the way she writes. She was very concise. Every time I tell this story, my sentences get shorter because I remember (laughs) the way she talks, which is very unlike the way I talk. Uh, And she told me several anecdotes some of which I had read. She, like all of us, I think, as you (laughs) get older, your memories harden a little bit and you tell the same stories to different interviewers. But it was still her telling the story that made the difference. And in fact, as I left, my husband was with me and he was in the interview I didn't dare take notes. I was too terrified. And (laughs) I also didn't ask to have a picture taken. Oh, no. Um, Yeah. So when we walked out, she said to me with a kind of twinkle in her eye, you didn't learn anything today you didn't know, did you? And I had to be quite quick on my feet as I thought about that, because in certain ways, I hadn't learned facts. I hadn't heard stories that were just Completely fresh and new, and we're going to change my mind about something. Things had been reinforced by my interview with her. But in fact, and this is what I said to her whatever experience I had today, it was very special because it was you doing the telling. Yeah. And I said, that makes all the difference to me to hear it from you. But she was very generous with me in terms of time and giving of herself. And I think she enjoyed it. She did live with other people in close surrounds. But my feeling is, especially living through COVID crisis, as we all are now, I yeah. probably was just a little bit of a joggle to the brain juices, because I did come from another world. I yeah. was an art historian. She liked art historians. She was willing to get her story out there. But she wanted it to be told her way, not yeah. other people's way. So it was all in all a wonderful experience. And I immediately had my husband pull over, and between the two of us, we frantically wrote down (laughs) what we had talked about so that I have some pretty good notes of that. interview.
0: Oh, my gosh, that's incredible. Absolutely. I was like witnessing history. I mean, I'm so fascinated. You've obviously spent decades researching her and also hearing her from the horse's mouth herself. I mean, what made you want to study her, but in particularly her self-fashioning persona?
1: Well, the self-fashioning is another chapter altogether. The first chapter we can call the great American thing, which is when I was looking at her work and the way it exemplified for her a way of doing modern in an American voice. And that's what interested me. But after I wrote The Great American Thing, it took me two decades to get it published because I just didn't get it finished. <laughs> but once I got it finished, it was my so-called big book. And then I really was a bit footloose. What was going to come next? Well, in the writing of The Great American Thing, I had come across several artists, O'Keefe being one of the most interesting of them, who all had distinctive homes? Yeah, they had put time into the way they lived domestically, and these same artists tended to be interesting dressers. Yeah, and in fact, I would even say most of them had interesting letter writing styles. Yeah. So I began to wonder if there was ways in which modernists expressed themselves. They couldn't live differently than they were. In the studio as artists, they had to bring a certain artistry to every element of their life. This began to dawn on me and that yeah, that yeah. it was not true of everybody, every artist, but it was true of many. So I started yeah. a, a lecture about artists' dress and it started in England and actually with the pre-Raphaelites oh, who were wow. the first to wear big rugged tapes, wow. an identifier of themselves as artists. And then, of course, you moved to Whistler and Oscar Wilde, who were very self conscious, artful dressers. Yeah. And then I got interested in Gertrude Stein as a dresser. And in fact, oh, wow. I, I eventually went on to do an exhibition where, even before my work on O'Keeffe, dress was very important in that exhibition about Stein. So in giving this lecture, people were very interested in it. And I thought, oh, I think maybe I'll never get to the homes and the letter writing style and the food, but I will pursue this costume and self-fashioning question to see where it takes me. And I learned that Georgia O'Keeffe's two homes that had just come into the ownership of the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico... I learned that the closets were filled with her clothes and that those clothes were being slowly taken out of the homes for safekeeping, but there was no cataloging of them. And this was around the, the year 2000. And I never got around to really looking at those clothes until about 2011 or so. Oh, wow. And at that point, the clothes were in storage at the museum but not yet studied. I spent six months at the museum studying them uh, with the help of curators, and then uh, eventually I hired a research assistant to help me because, first of all, there are many clothes, many more than you you might think. (laughs) She didn't save just the last five, ten years of her life. Many things were clearly of an earlier date back to the 1920s. She died in 86. So that means that for 60 years, she had kept some of these costumes and they were gorgeous. So in trying to understand them, I've always kept in mind the fact that this woman had saved these things for obviously a reason, but that got me going. And so this was really a project of, let's say, 2010. And I spent the next six or seven years uh, getting the book done and getting the exhibition that followed and just making sense of the meaning of clothes to this artist. And that's what, frankly, as an art historian, drove me because I realized that I had been given a treasure, really, in trying to understand the way self-fashioning might fit into a modernist identity of an artist that also obviously had a strong studio life and that we honor that life and we study that life. But what we don't do is the surround. And part of the reason we don't do the surround in the case of O'Keeffe, and this goes back to the early years of feminism, we didn't want to overly feminize her. Yeah. And one way in which that might naturally happen would have been to emphasize domesticity in her life or food or her gardens. She had fantastic yep. gardens. Really? Oh, wow. Yes. And, and well, we don't know any of this because it wasn't our job as art historians to yeah. f- study them. And if so, we might clearly think it was extraneous to our understanding of her as an artist. Wow. And so what I've spent the last 10 years trying to do is to make it seem not extraneous, but totally integral to who she was as an artist. Absolutely. So I want
0: to come back to this later on, but first I want to get into who George O'Keeffe was. So she was born in 1887, the second of seven children to Dutch-Hungarian immigrant parents. I mean, she grew up on a farm near Prairie in Wisconsin. What sort of childhood did she have?
1: Well, she basically had a farm life. She didn't live on the farm long enough for its daily routines to be important to her later life. What I think was important is that she lived in wide open country. Yeah. She lived in an environment that was not urban but rural. And that stuck. And she never went back to Wisconsin. But I think it gave her a sense of wide open spaces as her territory, her kind of space.
0: Absolutely. But I mean, I'm, I'm also aware that she decided to be an artist before she was even 12 years old. I mean, she was clearly interested in art.
1: Yes, that is something she said. And she would back that up by talking about sketching her siblings and dressing her dolls. I don't think she was what we would call a child prodigy necessarily, but, and let's not forget that she grew up in a late Victorian home. Young women were often taught to draw, often taught to sew. And both of those we know she got from her female relatives.
0: Absolutely. So in 1905, she studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and then in 1907 went to the Art Students League in New York. I mean, what was her education like? I mean, bearing in mind, this must have been one of the earliest times where women were even able to have artistic education.
1: Yes, that's right. And I believe it was segregated education in Chicago, that is women's classes versus men's classes. And she basically went there because she had an aunt that she could stay with. She was not a woman of means. Her home was middle class, and eventually, actually, her family fell on very hard times. So she never had the resources where she could have been as independent as she would have liked to be. In New York, she went to the Art Students League, which was a very progressive place, although many of its classes were still single sex. In Chicago, she had a very academic curriculum. And by that, we mean that she had to draw from plaster casts and work everything out in black and white before she could advance to paint. But she didn't stay very long there. At the Art Students League, she was able to study with William Merritt Chase, who was a student of Whistler. She could take advanced classes in watercolor. So she moved away from draftsmanship to a painterly palette and learned how to be a landscapist, a still lifist a portrait painter. But in each of those cases, frankly, she kept on as an artist. She became a landscape artist and a still-life artist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, because am I right in thinking, she then taught at schools in the sort of 1910s and actually moved to West Texas, Virginia, and South Carolina. I mean, how do you think these places began to shape the work that she was going to be making?
1: After she did one year at the Art Students League, she would love to have gone back, but her family couldn't afford to send her back. And she had been a boarder in a woman's boarding house there. So there were the expenses of daily living in New York, as well as the tuition of the school. So she basically taught because she had to make her own living. And by that time, she was in her early 20s. And her teaching was in high schools. And then eventually, she even had a job in a brand new teaching college. And she was teaching for a couple of reasons one, to make her living. But secondly, she felt she only had one set of skills, which was art skills. And she couldn't quite imagine what else she could do with herself. I think we have to admire is her independence at that early age, not wanting to just hang out at home and help her mother, who was opening up a boarding house herself. So O'Keefe used those teaching years to move around. And it got her to Texas. And that's when she really began to be amazed by the American West, the real flat desert West. And began to see that there was another part of America very different from the ones she had known before. And that really inspired her eventually. So during those teaching years, she was also very disillusioned with herself as an artist. She felt as if she was just doing routine art. And when she would teach, she would go home to Virginia, where her mother and sisters were living, and spend the summers and reunite with the family. And in the early teens, 19 teens, she was persuaded by one of her sisters to look at a class open to women at the University of Virginia, which was a men's college at the time, but in the summer was offering co-ed classes. And she was encouraged to take a class with Alon Bement, not a household name by any means. However, (laughs) this man had studied with somebody who was something of a household name, uh, at least in art history, Arthur Wesley Dow, D-O-W. And Dow taught a whole bunch of artists who took his philosophy for what today we see as an early form of abstraction. These teachers took his message out into the world, and Georgia O'Keeffe came upon her version of it through this teacher. And It turned her mind to thinking of making paintings that were about lines and shapes and what today we would call abstract forms. They might be trees, they might be clouds, they might be stars in the skies, but she would render them abstractly. And it changed her mind as to what her art might become. And she returned to making art as a side activity to her teaching She would do it in the evening, she would do it on the weekends, and she continued for some five years to take classes and to, in fact, assist in classes at the University of Virginia. And that was the curriculum that made her into a modern painter.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. She was so determined from the get-go and really kind of knew that she wanted to be an
1: artist. And it was when she was experimenting with these new ideas, out in Texas, she was making charcoal drawings that were beautiful serpentine lines and spiral shapes. And she rolled them up and sent them back to her friend Anita Pollitzer that she had met when she was a student at the Art Students League. Anita was also a very independent woman A great feminist. She worked for the suffrage movement day and night, as it turned out. In fact, she followed that as her livelihood rather than being an artist. And she took these drawings, which she just knocked her out. They were so unusual, never seen anything quite like it. But what did they look like? Well, they looked a little bit like the things that she had seen in Alfred Stieglitz's gallery, (gasps) Uh, the gallery he called 291 because it was at 291 Fifth Avenue. And Apollitzer knew that Stieglitz was the best-known person in New York for sponsoring, supporting, and evangelizing for an art of freedom, an art that moved away from the academy, moved away from figuration, and moved more to philosophy of abstraction. And she took these works to Stieglitz, and he looked at these charcoal drawings. He said, finally, a woman on paper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as if he'd been looking for one for many yes. years and finally he found one. And that really is the start of a different chapter and a new story in her life.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, she moves to New York City, he agrees to sort of sponsor her for a year. She has a studio space. I mean, she's becoming a professional artist. I mean, New York City is obviously so different to the landscape that she's been in previously. You know, we've got skyscrapers. It's the sort of late teens. It's the 20s. Everything's kind of coming up It's such an exciting time. I mean, what happened to her work when she moved here?
1: Well, she moved in 1918, stopped teaching. She left Texas. Uh, She went to New York. She moved into a studio apartment that Stieglitz provided for her. And he quickly moved in with her, an unhappily married man at this point, but some 23 years older than she. And there begins one of the great love affairs of the early 20th century. But in her art, let's stick with that for a moment. um, (laughs) She continued some of the directions she had taken herself in Texas But she moved into oil paints. That was a very big move. That meant canvases. That meant her work was getting bigger. And then eventually in the early 20s, she took up a theme, the theme of flowers, that was really her own theme. It was a natural for a woman to take up flowers because flowers were stereotyped as woman's material, but nobody had ever painted them the way she did. And I think she rather self-consciously did was to take something that meant a lot to her. She found flowers beautiful, but also to paint them in a decidedly new vocabulary that no one had ever tried before.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, during the 1920s, I mean, her work was also inspired by a sort of sensorial simulation. She said, I paint because color is a significant language to me. I mean, was her work, I mean, obviously she studied the work of Arthur Wesley Dow, but I mean, was there some kind of affiliation with synesthesia or spiritualism or anything there?
1: Well, certainly synesthesia was in the air and yeah. she would have known about that. And then the whole notion of Abstract painting being like a kind of way the music works on us. It works on us not because it's imagistically, but because it enlivens our senses. It, It awakens them and animates them and we receive it. And those ideas were certainly in the air. But as a colorist, she was always very proud of herself that she loved color and that she used- You can tell. Big colors, yeah. (laughs) She was brave in a way. Yeah, totally. nobody else was using color with such bombast as she was in those early years.
0: Totally. I mean, the Whitney have an amazing one of hers from just 1918. I mean, music, pink and blue, number two. I mean, this is so ahead of her time. I mean, think about who's making work at the time, Kandinsky, Modrian, Paul Klee. She's totally there with them. Yes.
1: And not only that, she made two of those, number one and number two. Uh, Yes, And they're (laughs) very interesting to hang together because they're in a series. But uh, that also was a very modern idea, which is you take the same colors, the same shapes, the same symphonic combination. And you do not one or two or three versions of it to show, if you will, the way in which you can manipulate your tools and create just variations on that particular tune.
0: Absolutely. So I mean, between sort of 1919 and 1923, she was creating these such significant abstractions of American modernism. However, before they were exhibited, Alfred Stieglitz also took lots of nude, semi-nude images of her. I mean, this is where she gets really interesting, which I'm really fascinated with your territory, because in a way, George O'Keeffe must have been, I mean, he had an exhibition of these photographs, first of all, and she
1: must be almost the kind of first celebrity artist. When Stieglitz showed the first photographs of her, he started to take them in 1917, and he went on to take some 330 photographs of her. And the, some of the early ones are indeed bedroom life. She's nude or semi-nude. And others of them are her standing in front of works of art. And some of them are just her being slightly provocative. When he showed those works, it wasn't an exhibition dedicated to her, first of all. It was an exhibition dedicated to his photography, one section of which was devoted to her. So in 1923, he really hadn't yet settled on this idea of a continuous portrait of her that was going to go on for another 15 to 20 years. But some of those works were indeed of her. Some of them were of body parts as opposed to the whole figure. And she didn't yet have a reputation as an artist, but she didn't have her first big show until the next year. So I always like to think that As she developed her reputation as a New York artist, he, at the same time, is developing his reputation as a fine arts photographer, one piece of which is going to be his great idea of taking one model and seeing and watching and photographing her over the course of many years. So, what makes it unique is the fact that at the same time she's becoming a modern artist, she's also becoming a kind of photographic media personality. We don't really know her that strongly yet, but we will over the course of the years. She also realizes that it does not do her career as an up and coming painter any good to have lots of nude photographs of herself put on the walls of his exhibition. So, she begins to clamp down on him taking any more nude photographs, but also showing any more nude photographs so that her career could sort of survive that part of the industry of making her name matter. She's Negotiating it, let's put it, without an awful lot of knowledge of how to do that. It's not an easy moment because she's being exploited in ways that nobody would have called exploitation at the time. But as we look back, I think we see that those images of her didn't help necessarily. They began to create a public image of her that was counterpart to what she really desperately wanted, which is to be known as a painter.
0: But I mean, her style shifted so much in this decade as well because, I mean, New York must have had such a profound influence on her. I don't know if it was perhaps maybe wanting to depart. I know that some critics would say that these works were inherently tied up with her sexuality, but she created works such as New York with Moon in 1925 and the radiator building of Night New York. I mean, it looks as though her work goes completely from nature to then this New York
1: skyline. In the 20s, flower paintings are what kind of get her first launch. And then the discourse of sexuality surrounds them, but that's partially because Alfred Stieglitz kept it alive and perpetuated it at every turn and had loved it when critics would read these Freudian terms. He was very instrumental in keeping that discourse as vibrant as it became. And the more vibrant it became, the more upset she became with being seen only one way and being seen repeatedly the same way. So the turn to skyscrapers, for instance, which she did momentarily, was partially trying to get out of a box. A box, she felt the flower paintings and the sexual interpretations of the flower paintings had put her in. And increasingly, she learned that what she wanted to be was an artist, not a woman artist. And she got annoyed and tried to figure out, where can I go? What can I do that will upset? How can I be discordant? And she did that partially by changing her imagery. The move away from abstraction was also in response to this highly sexualizing of her vocabulary. I think in a way there is a move in the late 20s throughout her community of artists uh, towards more figuration. But as we move towards 1930, there is a general drift towards more figuration that isn't just exclusive to O'Keeffe.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting because she's working alongside so many interesting artists. I mean, in Europe, it's surrealism at the time and she feels way ahead Yes. Of them in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, she liked to be thought of as a homegrown product. Uh, <laughs> she was not in touch with Europe. I admire a great deal her independence from trendiness. Yeah. And I also admire her confidence that she didn't have to be experimenting all the time with the same things the men were experimenting with. She was comfortable pursuing mountain ranges and lakes and. Trees as subject matter when nobody else was interested in making those the subject of deeply modern paintings.
0: And so, in the summer of 1929, she made the first of many trips to northern New Mexico. The sort of stark landscape and Native American Hispanic culture of the region inspired a new direction in her art. I mean, for the next two decades, she spent most summers living and working in New Mexico, but then actually eventually moved there in the late 40s after Stieglitz died. I mean, why do you think she was drawn to this particular place and how did this place then elevate her work even further?
1: When she first went to New Mexico, she went to the Santa Fe Taos area. That area has always attracted artists since... It's where Agnes Martin lived. Agnes Martin lived there. And there was already a school of Taos artists who did primarily paintings of the landscape and so on. So she really was going to where artists had already carved out a space. And when she went there, she was given a place to live and a studio to paint, and she fell in love with everything about it. You could live out of doors in New Mexico, day in and day out in the summer particularly. She loved the variation and the dryness of the landscape. So she moved around quite a bit before she found her part of New Mexico, which is actually quite distant. But what happened is that she knew right away that this interested her more as a landscape than anything ever had in New York. And things were falling apart in her marriage. So she was free in a certain way to think of alternatives for herself. And one alternative was to carve out a new painting district that was just hers, Nobody else was there, although others from Stieglitz's circle would go out for a summer or two, but then give up and not come back. But she. (laughs) (laughs) Why was that? Well, many people found it a little too dry and dusty. Yeah. And many people found it was a kind of alien place to spend a lot of time in because it was small town living. Or it was rural living. Roads weren't paved yet. And there weren't a lot of modern amenities. And it it wasn't for everyone.
0: It's just incredible the way she captures the landscape. I mean, something like Black Mesa landscape. It's just you could almost feel the dry texture on it.
1: Yes, that's a kind of volcanic rock formation that she's painting there. Well, for her, I think the solitude she could get in the southwest was one thing that she liked a great deal. But she is deeply committed as a person to natural surrounds. But she eventually decided that the landscape that was best for her, the one that she could relate to the most, was the much more wide open and starker moonscape possibilities that she found in New Mexico.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's so fascinating what she kind of continues to make in the following decades here. Works like Pelvis 2 from 1944, which is kind of like completely zoom in on this minutiae of a bones. I mean, I love how she kind of constantly repeats and repeats the same subject over again, but from every different angle and from every different perspective. It's incredible.
1: Well, that's her seriality. (laughs) She doesn't give up easily with a theme. She takes it and reworks it. Skulls became a signature style for her. Who had ever painted a skull before? But she was the first to actually make it as a painting motif for people to look at outside of the Southwest, for people to look at in New York. And it threw New York somewhat for a loop. The critics didn't know what to do with these skull paintings when she first (laughs) began to show them. They thought maybe she was having some kind of uh, religious experience, like a saint night with a human skull. So that's an interesting story in and of itself.
0: Totally. I mean, if you look at something like Sky Above Clouds 4 or something from 1965, it does feel very celestial. So I think what's so fascinating about Georgia O'Keeffe's work is, you know, we talked about this idea of colour and this idea that, you know, she was so clearly obsessed with colour and her works are just filled, they're voids of colour. I mean, it's this language. And then yet, when you look at her in photographs, she's wearing completely monochromatic, I mean, stunning, but monochromatic clothing. Why did she want to have such a contrast with her work and why was she interested in this almost androgynous monochromatic
1: aesthetic? As I began to study her clothes, I was of course assuming they would be primarily all white or all black or some combination thereof, because that's yeah. the way we see urban photographs. Yeah. And yeah. particularly we think of her as one of the first artists that took on black as her signature color. So what I quickly learned is that she dressed for photographers. And when she dressed for black and white photographers, that's what she and Stieglitz invented was a look. Yeah. For the black and white photographer. And so her formal vocabulary as a dresser in photographs that we know of her does make her look as if she must have been a rather singular dresser. Well, that was a vocabulary for her. But in fact, she did like primary colors, but she didn't wear these things for the camera. And she also was a modernist in that she liked patterns, which we also rarely see in the formal photographs. She didn't have a huge part of her wardrobe dedicated to these other colors and patterns, but enough so that you realized the degree to which she dressed for the photographer. And you also realize what a modernist she was, that monochrome dressing was important to her. She liked all red things or all blue things. She picked up jeans and denim shirt as her vocabulary for the Southwest. So I learned a lot by looking at the clothes about her as a colorist. I even learned to look a little bit harder at her paintings and realize that, and this will be someday, someone will take this up as an idea, you could yeah. you could put together an exhibition about black and white in her paintings. But we have so celebrated her as a colorist, which she was yeah. very good at. We just have never realized that, particularly in the late 20s, when she's developing her wardrobe for the public consumption, she's doing a lot of paintings which use a black and white palette. Another revelation is the degree to which the aesthetic that she so masterfully developed as a painter is also the same aesthetic that she developed in her uh, self-fashioning. For instance, if you look at the way she emphasized external shape in her dresses or her coats where it wasn't internal decorations, but very few ruffles, for instance. If there were going to be pleats, they're going to be tiny little pleats that create little lines down her front. But the abstract vocabulary she developed in the studio is also a vocabulary that she applied to her body when she was choosing her dresses over the course of her career. And we know that at the beginning of her career, almost everything was handmade for her or by her. We know she was a good seamstress and we know that dress was very important to her. She liked to be seen with a certain style. Most of us have many different people in our wardrobes, but she had a remarkable consistency of aesthetic that did not change. The fashion changed over the years. That is, she didn't like to look like a hippie. She didn't like to look like an outsider. She didn't like to look over-decorated, as many artists do. But she had a consistency of aesthetic. And I would even argue that same consistency is to be found in her painting style. So silhouette, always important. Simplicity, always important. Well, we could make similar kinds of analogies to the way she created paintings. Yeah. I mean,
0: she was also famed for having a fantastic collection of kimonos.
1: Yes. And that's always interesting because people know about the kimonos, but they, if you think about it, you don't really know much about them because she dressed in them for photographers, because she rarely did, only for Stieglitz. But kimonos for her were homeware. Yeah. She loved them. She loved their shapes. She loved their flow. She loved, again, the sameness of pattern throughout them. But they were what she used for house dresses, so to speak. And she never thought of them as what you wore in public.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well when you see her in the photographs. I'm just looking at her work, the Ansel Adams photograph, the Tony Vaccaro and the fantastic Stieglitz images of her. I mean, she does appear quite androgynous, but actually in your exhibition there were so many I guess, feminine, as as you would say, dresses. I mean, why do you think that she wanted to keep those personas different? Or do you think that she was purposely being androgynous? Maybe I'm just reading into it.
1: Yes, I think she's more androgynous than not. (laughs) Yeah, I think she hated deeply gendered dress. She did like a neutral middle ground. It had some politics to it in the early years. We do have a few images where she's wearing, for instance, Turkish pants, which were kind of Bloomer <laughs> in the 1920s yeah. and clearly wearing just single color black particularly is a male fashion statement because suits are a single color. And so yes. we very easily can see that she was crossing lines in her early dress, but so were a lot of other feminist dressers at the time. She was in a campaign against Victorian dress uh, and yeah. for modern dress And that's where I have been able to put her into a particular dress story that I think we haven't seen her in before.
0: Yeah, totally. Because also, I think as well, maybe because, I mean, the reason why her work has affected people for so many years and the reason why her images as well continue to sort of beguile people is because there is this sort of timeless quality about it as well. And so your highly, incredibly successful exhibition, which just ended last year on its incredible tour, by kind of you know, putting paintings alongside her clothes, etc. What did you want to get across? What did you want people to learn about her identity? Yeah.
1: What I decided to do in creating an exhibition about her fashion was that that wasn't the main point, that, oh, yes, yeah. she had all these clothes and uh, she saved them and she probably made many of them that I attribute to her. Uh, that, I realized, is was a story that the fashion people would have loved alone. But the bigger story was the fact that she was a woman uh, that had made so many parts of her life have a kind of synchronicity that it was what I call her sense of aesthetic, a unitary aesthetic. She didn't change her aesthetic, whether it was the way she was preparing and putting food on the table, to the way she dressed, to the way she put her living room together, to the way in which she painted in the studio. So that became the thesis A woman for whom one aesthetic controlled every aspect of her life. And that, not only that, but she asserted that aesthetic uh, with a kind of discipline and a kind of assuredness and confidence that is admirable, particularly because it began very early in her life, this dedication to this aesthetic, and that continued for the rest of her years. So, to do that, we decided the clothes had to be next to the art. The art had to be next to photographs of her wearing clothes like those that were on display. We had to include seriality in the paintings and seriality in the wardrobe, where she would take one idea and then expand it into six different outfits. Or she would find one pair of shoes that were perfect for her, not just in comfort, but in aesthetic. And she would buy them in six or seven (laughs) different colors. Yes, I love the vitrines of all of them in the show. (laughs) So the show became cross-referenced many different aspects of her life and was multimedia in type. And I think that was part of its success, uh, that people could see the life come through each and every one of these elements and not be asked to focus exclusively on the work of art. I don't apologize for that at all, because I think it was opening our eyes, and maybe this will, in fact, affect other ways in which we do exhibitions. It was opening up our eyes to the fact that we study perhaps too exclusively the art at the detriment to understanding the artistry in a life.
0: Totally. I mean, it's so fascinating right now in London, we've got the Artemisia Gentileschi exhibition and what's included in her letters. We've got even the transcript from her rape trial. We've got all of, you know, this is a woman speaking in the 1600s and just having those letters and on painting, she looks like this completely boisterous, kind of totally triumphant woman. But then you read these letters of her grieving for her four-year-old son who died and, and, and it just uh, another identity you know opens up and i think it's such an interesting way of curating exhibitions i think what you did was fantastic because you see the whole rounded perspective of someone yeah.
1: Well, we just had that exhibition uh, reviewed in the New York Times this morning oh. of Artemisia. Oh, yes. And I wish so much I could just hop on a plane and <laughs> get to see it, but I'm not sure whether that's going to be in the cards given the times we live in. But lucky you to have that exhibition finally open in London. exactly. And it's a remarkable parallel, I think, to what I'm saying. And, and perhaps, you know, we might even discover that women's lives become more interesting or at least more telling, if I can put it that way, that women may attend to other aspects of their life in different ways than men do, and that we have rather unfairly forced them into a kind of mold curatorially and missed part of the story because of that.
0: Absolutely. Well, Wanda, thank you so much for spending the time today. It was just a total privilege to speak to you. And as it is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, I know that you've met Georgia, but if she were around now, or perhaps you could be transported back into the 20s or the 60s or whatever, what would you say to her?
1: Well, if I could talk to her now, I would <laughs> love to hear what she would have said or would have to say about my exhibition. I would love to hear whether she thinks this was at all a diminishment or, of her talents or an enlargement, as I think of it, an enlargement of who she was and how she moved through life. Uh, that would be my big question. I'd love to know if she could handle this <laughs> multimedia discussion of her because she grew up in the very culture that we've been talking about, where is the work of Artist king. And the other aspect of life are secondary or subsidiary. But I also would have a minor question to ask her because we have works of art that we've attributed to her hand that are exquisitely handcrafted. She did also work on sewing machines, but I would love to know if I'm right in attributing (laughs) them to her hand. And whether that was part of the reason she saved these works for her entire life, that they held for her memories, but also memory of labors. They are labors of exquisite accomplishment. So I would want to ask her to identify or to help me understand how many of these she made or how many she asked and helped somebody else make
0: fantastic Wanda M Corn thank you so much for coming to the podcast today
1: thank you Katie it's a pleasure to talk with you
0: thank you all so much for listening to the 44th episode of the great woman Artists podcast with the brilliant Wanda M Corn on the incredible Georgia O'Keeffe this was such an insight into her life Work and self fashioning persona. And I am not only completely blown away by the fact that Wanda met O'Keefe in her lifetime, but I am fascinated by this idea of telling a story of the whole artist, not just the finished artwork. If you would like to find out more, I have linked to Wanda's exhibitions in the show notes. This episode was sounded by the brilliant Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.